It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. As Surgeon General, Jerome Adams is known as the nation's doctor. He was sworn into office last September by Vice President Mike Pence. He's pledged to lead with science and use local resources to tackle national health crises. The country's latest crisis, kids being separated from their parents at the southern border, carries negative health outcomes. We know that children not being around their parents is a bad thing. But when you look at what's going on at the border, what the president, in my opinion, is trying to do is thread a delicate needle of governing with heart, but also trying to enforce the rule of law. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from Spotlight Health. Surgeon General Jerome Adams says there's no question adverse childhood experiences could arise from dividing kids from their parents. He thinks lawmakers need to come up with a policy that harms the fewest number of people, and he supports President Trump. The president signed an executive order ending the separation of children from their families, but not before more than 2,000 kids were separated from their guardians as a result of Trump's initial policy. Adams speaks with Allison Kojak, a health policy correspondent at NPR. They discuss the border issue, the opioid crisis, gun control, and leading with science. Here's Allison Kojak. So I'm going to start this off um, with what I think is sort of the most pressing health news of this week, um, which would be the issue of the children coming across the U.S. border being separated from their parents. It's a policy that was implemented by the Trump administration. You work for the Trump administration. What do you say about the health implications of what has been happening at the border? Starting off with a softball, (laughs) huh, Allison? (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, it's important that everyone knows that I don't have any direct authority or decision-making over what's going on down there, and that I am not speaking on behalf of the administration, I'm speaking on behalf of myself. You talked about the HIV outbreak in Indiana, and um, th- there, are, there are similarities here in, in, a, in, in an interesting way. Public policy is complicated, and folks always say to me, we want you to lead with the science, but the reality is, the science is one part of a multivariate equation that, that equates to public policy. I want every decision to be informed by the science, but we also have to do a good job of listening. And how does that relate to, to the question you're asking? Well, we know that children not being around their parents is a bad thing. We know that it can lead to negative health outcomes. Science tells us that. Uh, But when you look at what's going on at the border, what the president, in my opinion, again, I'm not speaking for him, is trying to do is thread a delicate needle of governing with heart, but also trying to enforce the rule of law. And I'll give you a real story here because we can talk in theoreticals, but we, we both live in the Northern Virginia, Maryland area. Do you remember the case just a, about a year ago when there was a young lady in school who was killed by MS-13? Mm-hmm. By someone who came into our country through a similar pathway. And if I go to a meeting and the mother of that daughter is in the crowd and she says, why aren't you doing everything you can 
as a, as a representative of this administration to enforce the rule of law. My daughter would be alive today if you had. I've got to be able to answer that question. The president's got to be able to answer that question. And it's a difficult balancing act. I think you saw through his executive order how, how much uh, it's pained him. And he's still trying to, as the first lady said, govern with heart, but also enforce the rule of law and do what the people of the United States elected him to do. But as Surgeon General, uh, again, I'm focused on making sure folks know the science so that it can be part of that equation, but it doesn't mean that the science automatically ends up in a decision that, that goes the way that we want. Because again, that mother may say it's bad for health for us not to enforce the, uh, the rule of law. Uh, when you talk about adverse childhood experiences, Unfortunately, we're hearing horrific stories about people being brought across the border by smugglers. Uh, what's the adverse childhood experience of a child being taken away from their home in their native country, coming across a border, and then being sent back home again, or uh, being sexually assaulted in the process? We've got to balance all those things and try to come up with a policy that, that harms the, uh, the fewest number of people. And I put it that way instead of saying helping the most, because Again, we'd love it if we could come up with public policy that hurts no one. But that's not the world we live in. And I'm going to continue to focus on leading with the science and trying to mitigate harm wherever I can. Uh, I said I don't have any authority. One thing I do have authority over, talking about adverse childhood experiences or an ability to, to impact, are the uh, person dying every 12 and a half minutes from an opioid overdose in our country. There are children, dozens of children every day, who were losing their parents, who were being ripped away from their parents because of the opioid epidemic. And that's definitely an adverse childhood experience to go in and find your parent dead on a bathroom floor, to know that you're never going to have them. And so as Surgeon General, I am focusing my energy based on the tools that I have on helping folks understand the severity of the opioid epidemic and the steps that any one of us can and should be taking to help mitigate that opioid epidemic and to try to keep those families together. And that's the most honest answer I can give you on this situation, Allison. Uh, we all think that what's happening, at least what we see on TV, um, is, is a very unfortunate and at times tragic situation. Also as public policy officials, and you know this too, we've got to be careful about reacting to, to what we see on Twitter or on Facebook. There was a story that came out that said, that folks weren't allowed to touch the children. Alex Azar, uh, Secretary Azar, was on the news last night, did a full investigation. Nowhere can we find that that's a policy that's being enforced. So it we, was, but it was, it might not be an official policy, it was what the people working in the detention centers believed to be the case. And, and so, and, you and know, the, the way and that's, things play out. And that's a fair policy. statement. And again, anytime you're trying to enact public policy for large numbers of folks, we've always got to be vigilant about making sure things are being done in a way that helps the most people and harms the fewest people. And Secretary Azar is committed to, and he said that, making sure that these centers are run to the best of our ability because that's our responsibility from HHS. Did anybody in the administration come to you or HHS come to you to say, or were there internal discussions saying, what is this doing to the children? I don't, there, there wasn't. I don't think anyone believes that, that separating a, a child from their parent is a good thing. There's a lot of folks, and this is another, it relates to all sorts of conversations we could have, but um, you know, folks will say, why aren't, why aren't you weighing in more forcefully? I haven't met a single person 
who doesn't think that this is, is, could, could potentially lead to negative health outcomes. Again, it's about balancing public policy. There are a lot of folks who, who want to talk about it from one point of view, but at, in reality, what, what they are trying to do is paint daylight or create daylight between the president and members of the administration. Um, I don't think the, pr the president has said he, know, he doesn't want this to, ha to happen. The attorney general has said he doesn't want this to happen. Again, they're trying to balance rule of law and doing what they were elected to do with trying to govern with heart. Okay. I think we'll leave that issue there. Um, we will get to the opioid issue soon. I know that you've said that that's one of the most pressing you know, public health issues. Absolutely. But you have wanted very much to bring to the fourth the connection between health and economics, health and prosperity, and also, you know, in, in both ways, not simply the effect of poverty on individuals' health, but also the effect on the economy of our public health. Can you tell me a little bit about what you see there in terms of distinction? You all are going to have a great talk um, tomorrow from Atul Gawande, who's now been uh, put in charge of a consortium to address health care uh, on behalf of Amazon, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Berkshire Hathaway. Why are they doing that? Because the number one cost for Fortune 500 companies is salary, and the number two cost for Fortune 500 companies is health care. Uh, put simply, our country, our economy is suffering is not as competitive as it could be because of our high health care cost. Uh, another statistic for you, the number one issue people vote on, Democrat or Republican, black or white, rural or urban, is jobs in the economy. People rarely, rarely vote on health as one of their top five issues. Now, some of you may say, well, health care and health care cost comes up there, but I'd argue people still aren't voting on health they're voting on the fact that they can't pay their bills because they're going bankrupt trying to pay their health care expenses. So Einstein said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. We can keep beating, over, beating people over the head with a health, health, health message when the polls show us that it's not what they're voting on, or we can reframe the discussion on health in a way that resonates. And I know, I'm convinced that communities that are healthier are more economically prosperous. I'm looking right in the audience at Dan Butner, who's done some great work with, uh, with Blue Zones. And while that was originally uh, started to increase the number of people who can live to be over the age of 100, to, to increase the number of people who can be healthy in communities, they found that they've been able to lower absenteeism rates, increase the, uh, the, the prosperity, the financial prosperity of communities. And if we can collect those sorts of examples, and make that case, then we'll find that we'll have a, a lot more success pushing our health agenda. I'm going to tell you all a quick story because I love stories. When I was Indiana State Health Commissioner, uh, we had a discussion about tobacco taxes. Indiana has some of the lowest tobacco taxes in the state. And again, Surgeon General, science. The science says the higher the cost of tobacco, the less people smoke. So we're having a debate about raising our tobacco taxes. And we had about two hours worth of experts, people like me and you lined up talking about the need to raise the cost of tobacco. And then at the end, they had 10, 15 minutes of the business community come in and testify. 
some mom and pop bars, the gas stations, the casinos, the people who make money selling tobacco products. And they said, you know, we don't disagree with anything that the health people are saying, but the reality is raising the tobacco taxes is going to be bad for business, we're going to lose jobs, it's going to hurt our economy. Remember what I told you people vote on? So after all that, the legislature said there was equal testimony on whether or not we should raise the tobacco taxes, and we're going to table the issue for now. So the question I ask you is, the next time we have that discussion, do we bring more health people? Is that going to change what happened? We already had two hours of testimony to 15 minutes. I think what we need to do is have the Amazons, the Berkshire Hathaways, the JP Morgans showing up, representing the business case for us, and saying, no, smoking in our communities is actually costing us jobs. It's actually hurting our economy, and having policies that promote health is going to be good for business. So that's why I want to put out a Surgeon General's report on health and the economy, showing the data that links investments in community health to improved prosperity, and then giving people a toolkit, a toolkit that may be Dan's, Dan's Blue Zones, a toolkit that may be purpose-built communities in East Lake, East Lake Georgia. Uh, but, but ultimately helping folks understand how they can interact with partners in their community to invest in health and to get policies that accomplish what we want. Okay, I'm going to just throw in a little bit of context here. Dr. Adams grew up in Southern Maryland working on his grandfather's tobacco farm. So he knows this issue, you know, very deeply, the issue of economics, you know, even if it doesn't necessarily fit into the public health message. It does, and, and that, there's, a, there's an irony there, but I also think a very important message for folks. Uh, again, folks do not prioritize health. I paid, my parents were both school teachers and we had um, five kids in the house. I didn't realize how poor we were, but by any standard, we were poor. I used the money I made in the tobacco field to buy the clothes that I was able to, uh, to wear at school, to buy books, to pay for things that, that ultimately helped me become the person that I am today. And what the irony there is that if we hadn't had the tobacco fields, if I hadn't had the ability to go out and make $10 an hour as a kid working in the fields, I might not be here as Surgeon General of the United States advocating for anti-smoking policies and anti-tobacco policies. We have to realize that, again, the science is one part of the equation, but economics is another very important part of the equation, and we've got to do a better job of not saying black, white, good, bad, but understanding that we've got to provide people a glide path. We've got to help them see the vision. Yes, we want to get to a tobacco-free society, but we want to make sure we're not bankrupting communities and keeping young kids from being able to support themselves and their families in the process. We Sounds like, in your mind, the third half is politics. Well, it diplomacy is. Diplomacy and politics. It, it is. It's <laughs> diplomacy and politics, and, it's, and we need to be better partners. I, I'm a big believer in servant leadership. I'm a big believer that we need to be listeners more often than what we are talkers, and we need to understand what communities prioritize so that we can frame our message in a way that resonates. But I don't understand how the Berkshire Hathaway has helped the mom and pop gas station. How they help? Yeah, if they get involved in this, how, did that, how does that change the small business? Well, how it changes it is because right now, the business community and I'm doing my air quotes here on purpose, is being represented by people who are creating this binary health is bad for business argument. We need the Berkshire Hathaways to show up and say health is actually good for business because 
they know what I'm going to say when I walk into the State House or the Capitol. It's that goody two shoes Surgeon General saying that <laughs> we can't have any fun and that we need to spend all our money promoting health. They know what I'm going to say, but they know their voters are voting on jobs in the economy. And when Warren Buffett shows up and says we need to invest in health, it resonates in a very different way than even the Surgeon General of the United States showing up and saying we need to invest in health. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, Surgeon General Jerome Adams. Adams leads the U.S. Public Service Commission Corps, which includes 6,500 health officers who serve in hundreds of locations around the world. He was Indiana State Health Commissioner from 2014 to 2017. He's speaking with NPR's Allison Kojak. Before joining NPR, she was managing editor at the Center for Public Integrity. Now back to their conversation. Allison Kojak. All right, let's turn back to opioids a little bit. Because um, you've said that the addiction crisis is the top public health crisis that we're f- facing, which may seem obvious, but really, you know, how is it more pressing than diabetes or obesity <clears throat> or gun violence or any number of other things that are affecting so many people? Well, again, I'll give you a scientific statistical answer because there are any number of health problems that we could say are our top problem. Uh, But the trajectory of the opioid epidemic, the number of people dying, the rate at which that has increased is what makes this our top priority, number one. Number two, out of this tragedy, I think there is a tremendous opportunity. Three years ago, if I'd come to a town and said, I want your hospital CEO, your head of your public health department, your sheriff, your local faith-based leader, and the CEO of your top company to all come together and meet with me to to discuss a health issue, I would have gotten half of those people at most, even a Surgeon General of the United States, if I'm lucky. Now, every town I go to, all those folks want to come and meet with me and more to talk about the opioid epidemic. So I said it's a tragedy and an opportunity. We have a tremendous opportunity to use the opioid epidemic to bring people together to talk about health. And when I talk about the opioid epidemic, I talk about it not just as a problem, but as a symptom, a symptom of unwellness in our communities. We can get upstream and talk about addiction to all sorts of substances. We can go further upstream and talk about the need to look at mental health. We can go further upstream and talk about are we building communities that are resilient so people aren't developing mental health issues and having to make difficult choices about self-medicating in the first place. If we use this opioid epidemic as an opportunity to forge partnerships and to build healthier communities, then out of this tragedy, we can come out in a better place. And that's what I'm convinced I was put here in this job at this time to do, was to reframe the way we think and talk about health, to forge better health through better partnerships, and to use this opportunity that doesn't come along very often. I mean, health rarely is a top issue that people talk about, but people want to talk about opioids. So if you care about diabetes, You need to care about opioids because we're not going to be able to get all those folks together to talk about diabetes necessarily, but we can get them in to talk about opioids and then talk about building a community, creating a built environment that creates health for everyone. Okay, well then, you know what? Let's talk about Scott County. Um, Because it sounds like what we've been leading up to is Scott County. It's a poor community, 
it had a huge opioid issue. It suggests that there's a huge amount of despair and lack of economic opportunity that led to this massive crisis. Can you just talk about what it looks like? I've been there. I've been mm-hmm. to, to Scott County. I've talked to the sheriff and the public health people. You have. I don't think probably most people in this room have not. Tell them what it looks like there. Well, it's last in everything. Highest um, high school dropout rates, lowest uh, per capita income. Uh, What's interesting about Scott County is, again, is I said the opioid epidemic is not the problem so much as it is the symptom. If we deal with the opioid epidemic in Scott County that's going on, but we don't address community and wellness, they're also going to have the highest cancer rates. They're also going to have the highest cardiovascular disease rates. They're going to have many other ills. And so it's why I was so proud of our ability to bring folks together to address this issue. And it also leads back to my motto of better health through better partnerships and the reason why I say we need to be better listeners. Another quick story for you all. Allison and other people, NPR, Time Magazine, give me credit for convincing the governor to adopt a syringe service program. I don't deserve that credit. Um, What I did was be a listener, be a servant leader, There are many folks who wanted me to to use my authority to open up a syringe service program right away and to go down to Scott County the second it happened and just start pushing out syringes under an emergency order. If I'd done that, you know what would have happened? The town would have lost their minds. The local sheriff would have come and set up shop right outside of the syringe service program and arrested the first few people who came in. And many more people would have HIV right now. Here's what I did. I drove down to Scott County two hours, and that's important. I didn't ask the sheriff to come up to the big city to meet with me. I drove down to where he was, sat down with him. I didn't say, here's what you need to do to solve your problem. I said, Sheriff McLean, what are your concerns? What are you worried about? He said, I'm worried about the revolving door at my prison. It's overcrowded. I'm worried about my officers who are worn out responding to dirty needles in the streets. I'm worried about needle stick injuries to my law enforcement officers. I said, you know, Sheriff, those are valid concerns. And that's important, too. I validated his concerns because far too often, from a health point of view, we get on our high horse. And we say, your concerns aren't as valid as my concerns. I know better than you. I said, those are valid concerns, Sheriff McLean. You know what? If we do a syringe service program in concert, and if we do it the right way, we're going to connect people to care so your jails won't be as crowded. The studies show that we're going to lower needle stick injuries to law enforcement officers by 60%, and we're going to have less dirty needles in the streets, and the syringes that are there are going to be less likely to have HIV or hepatitis in them and harm someone. And the sheriff ultimately met with the governor and said, you know, governor, and the sheriff is conservative, Navy SEAL. He said, you know, governor, I'm uncomfortable with this, but the Surgeon General came down, or the health commissioner came down, he talked to me, and... I'm convinced that this is the right thing for us to do. And the governor, he knew the science. We'd been briefing him on the issue, but he needed to hear from the community because the key word in public policy is public. He needed to hear from the people who elected him, and they needed to be the ones to say, this is something that we want and we accept in our community. And it's been wildly successful. And one of the things I'm most proud of is that it's become a model for the rest of the country. Kentucky went from zero syringe service programs to over 50 in just, just over a year's time based on what happened 
in Scott County, Indiana. But that happened not because I ran down there or because I said, stood up in Indianapolis and said, science, 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 and you're an idiot if you don't listen to me. <laughs> it's because I was a, a listener, because I went down there and I tried to meet their needs, to meet them where they are, and we need to do a better job of doing that. And that's Sheriff I, I met with about a year ago, and he's a huge huge advocate and the county commissioners I think were voting on whether or not to end the needle exchange program and he said if that happens this uh, epidemic is just going to go spread like wildfire again. And having the sheriff carry your water just like I said having Warren Buffett carry your water having the sheriff carry your health message means so much more than having the health representatives carry your health message. They need to be there to inject the science in the conversation but number two issue people vote on is safety and security. We need to understand that. We need to understand how we can better resonate with the people we're trying to serve and the people we're trying to convince. And on that issue, on that note, I saw um, you had a, a long meeting with the National Association of Attorneys General, and you have worked, uh, I don't know how closely, but you've definitely reached out to them. You, you seem to think that working with law enforcement is important in, the, in this public health over, overall. You got, some, you got some criticism for that. Uh, I did. People said, you're the Surgeon General. Why are you worried about um, working with law enforcement? They criticized me for having the uh, several attorneys general at my swearing in. I actually got criticized for that. You know what? The number one mental health provider in our country is our law enforcement system. It's not something that I'm happy about. It's not something we want to continue, but it's a reality that we have to deal with. Number one touch point for people with opioid use disorder is the law enforcement system. So how are we going to solve the problems that we all want to solve in regards to mental health and in, in regards to opioid use disorder if we don't partner with those individuals? They're doing the best job they can. There's a saying, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Unfortunately, all we've given law enforcement is hammers and they keep seeking to try to create a bigger hammer, a shinier hammer, a more effective hammer, we need to be at the table with them, showing them that we care about what they're doing and not bad-mouthing them, showing them that we care, and then saying, hey, instead of a hammer, did you think about a screwdriver here? Did you think about a power saw here? Did you think about a shovel here? Showing them that full toolkit. And the communities that have been successful in turning around their opioid overdose rates, in every single community I've been to, there has been a close relationship between the public health community, the medical community, and the law enforcement community. It's got to be a key to us digging ourselves out of the hole that we're in. Do you think that there's still a lot of resistance in law enforcement broadly at the idea that drug addiction is a health issue versus a criminal issue? Yes. Uh, yes, there is still a lot of resistance. Law enforcement officers are just like all of us. And there's stigma that exists all across society. <clears throat> but I'll tell you how you don't overcome stigma is by saying you're evil, you're bad, you're stupid, you're an idiot. The way you overcome stigma is, number one, by sharing your story. And I've shared the story of my own brother, who's in state prison right now um, because of crimes he committed to support his addiction. That's one way you lower stigma, by normalizing it, by helping folks see that it's not us and them, it's all of us. But the other way you lower stigma is by showing up, sitting at the table, becoming a trusted partner. So now when the National Association of Attorneys General has something that, that has a health bent to it, they're going to call me up and say, hey, what do you think? Versus saying, 
We're not going to call that guy because he's just going to call up the local paper and make us look like idiots. Okay. So uh, you issued an advisory in April urging pretty much everybody on earth to carry naloxone. I know I'm exaggerating there, but like, it's pretty broad. Um, there's a lot of resistance to naloxone use as well. Um, so can you, first of all, talk about your rationale for sort of urging these... What is that? Um... I was checking for my naloxone. <laughs> oh, there we go. There it is. So I issued the first Surgeon General's advisory in 13 years, urging folks to know about and be willing to carry the overdose reversal drug naloxone. You've got a nasal form, and you've also got an injectable form. The injectable form is like an EpiPen. It literally talks you through what to do. And the nasal form is just like any other nasal spray. You put it in the nostril, and you push. That's how easy it is to save a life. Now, why am I asking you all to carry a drug well, again, a person dying of an opioid overdose every 12 and a half minutes, over half of those individuals are dying at home, which means we can't rely on calling 911 because it only takes four minutes to get anoxic brain injury. Anyone ever seen an ambulance show up in four minutes? We're not going to save lives. We're not going to dig ourselves out of this hole unless we encourage everyone to become a first responder. I can't tell you how many mothers, how many fathers I've met who've told me that their son or their daughter died just on the other side of a bathroom door, just outside in the garage, just in the bedroom, and how they wish they'd known about naloxone, how they wish they'd had the, the tools to be able to intervene. So I want everyone to think of naloxone the same way they think of CPR. If someone busted in that door right now and said, someone's having a heart attack, would you all reasonably expect someone in the room with no CPR? even if the Surgeon General weren't up here? <laughs> the answer is yes. But if someone were to bust in that door and say, you know, I think someone's having an overdose out here in the bathroom, can we reasonably expect that in an average audience of this size, someone's going to know about naloxone or have it? I don't think we're at that point right now, and we need to get to that point if we're going to dig ourselves out of this hole. So there is this stigmatized view of naloxone, which basically says, well, if you save them, they're just going to use again and have another overdose. Why the heck are we saving these people? Uh, <clears throat> that's, it, it is a problem that we have, and it's part of why we need to normalize uh, substance use disorder. So again, folks see it not as us and them, but as all of us to hear those stories about the families that have suffered, but also to hear the, the stories of recovery. Let me tell you about Jonathan. Jonathan I met in Rhode Island. His father died of an opioid overdose. Jonathan's older brother died of an opioid overdose. Family history. This is a family we should just write off. I mean, oh my gosh, there's just nothing we can do for him. Jonathan started misusing substances, and he actually had an overdose. But Jonathan's roommate had naloxone. Jonathan's roommate saved him Connected him, with a, uh, uh, connected him with a peer recovery coach. He went to the ER and was connected with a peer recovery coach, another key, making sure you have that warm handoff. Got him on medication-assisted treatment. And now Jonathan is a peer recovery coach and helping so many other folks. We need to share those stories of recovery and hope just as much as we share the, the, the harrowing statistics out there so that folks know that naloxone is not enabling substance use. And naloxone is enabling recovery. You, folks talk about moral hazard. 
And I had to look that up because I got really upset when I saw that article that said we shouldn't give people naloxone because it creates a moral hazard. Moral hazard is when you engage in a dangerous behavior because we've removed the consequences of that behavior. First of all, and I, I, as Surgeon General, it upsets me, as a, as a person, as a doctor, as a physician, as a brother of someone with substance use disorder, it pisses me off that folks think that letting someone die is an appropriate alternative or consequence for them misusing substances. We don't say that to the person who's having a heart attack, hey, you ate those cheeseburgers, that's on you. We don't say that to the person with COPD, hey, you smoked those cigarettes, that's on you. We're not gonna take care of you anymore. But going back to moral hazards, when you make a decision because you're removed from the consequences. Well, what's the moral hazard of saying it's okay to let someone else's kid die because, hey, it's not my kid. That's the moral hazard that exists, and we've gotta help folks again see that we need to treat addiction as a chronic disease and not as a moral failing. We need to treat it the same way we treat cardiovascular disease or COPD or any other chronic disease. And we need to see it, help them see that recovery is possible because realistically, they're frustrated because they think that we're just continuing to enable bad behavior. They don't hear or see that for a lot of these folks, this is a pathway to recovery. You know, I had a question here about medication-assisted treatment, which has a very similar debate around it. And I feel like you're going to make the exact same answer. So, <laughs> but you know, there's I, I personally, in doing stories on this, have talked to people who have had substance abuse issues who went through sort of a 12-step program and said, "I don't think people should use medication-assisted treatment because that's just perpetuating the addiction." Well, and again, that's where we need to inject the science into the conversation and share those stories of recovery, those stories of folks who've been able to go from the lowest of lows to being functional again in society. We need to say loudly for all to hear, and I know we've got a mixed crowd, some medical, but a lot not medical, that medication-assisted treatment is like providing medication for any other chronic disease. You're not enabling me to engage in bad behavior. I went out for a run this morning. I'm an asthmatic. Are you enabling me to make bad decisions because you gave me this inhaler? No. We need, were we enabling folks to continue to engage in, in bad behavior because we're giving them medication to treat their high blood pressure or, uh, or lipid-lowering drugs to treat their cardiovascular disease so they can go out again and, and again eat those french fries? No, we're not, and we need to help folks understand that, again, addiction is a chronic disease. There are evidence-based treatments, and medication assistance is an evidence-based treatment for chronic disease, uh, for the chronic disease of addiction that can lead to recovery. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Today's conversation is from Spotlight Health, a four-day health conference held in Aspen, Colorado. The event just wrapped up, so you can expect to hear additional health-related talks on the podcast in the coming months. The Aspen Ideas Festival is underway and will touch on topics like democracy, music, the animal mind, and foreign relations. We'll bring you those conversations as well. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode, or listen on your favorite podcast player. So there's a funny um, reverse incentive in medication-assisted uh, treatment, which is that while our healthcare system doesn't 
limit at all what you can prescribe in terms of o opioids to patients. Doctors can do whatever, pretty much whatever they want. Um, it's becoming a little bit more <laughs> restricted. There are real strong restrictions on who can prescribe Suboxone or other uh, anti, you know, opi opioid treatments. Are you, have you been speaking out on that? Have you been trying to change that? And anyway, I know there've been a little bit of loosening, but it seems very counterintuitive. Well, one of the things that happened was they lifted the, um, the cap on, uh, on the number of patients that folks who prescribe buprenorphine can, uh, can prescribe to. Sorry, you know what, I probably, I, if, for those who don't know, a doctor had to get a special training to be able to prescribe buprenorphine, yes. which is, and they were only limited, they were limited to caring for 100 patients, which sounds like a lot, but still. Um, so you'd only have a very small sliver of doctors who could treat people, and they could only treat a small sliver of people. And, and no mistake about it, it is a challenge. Again, I said public policy is hard. We all want tweets, we all want sound bites, we all want headlines. Uh, the reality is both that we need more people to be able to prescribe these medications if we're going to overcome the opioid epidemic, but the other reality is that the number one confiscated contraband in our Department of Corrections is Suboxone. We, it is both a medication that can be life-saving and help people and a medication that is being abused. And as we're developing policy, we're always trying to find that sweet spot where, again, we're helping the most people that we can and not hurting any more individuals than what we have to. And we're working diligently to try to figure out where that sweet spot is and whether it's to continue to lift the caps, whether it's right now we're working to continue to educate providers and help, help them make it easier for them to get data wavered. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate out there in the scientific community over whether or not we're going to do more harm than good if we just open up the floodgates and say everyone can prescribe this stuff when there's already data out there that says it's being diverted, that says it's being misused. I'm focused on making sure folks understand what good medication-assisted treatment looks like, and that's medication-assisted treatment combined with counseling, combined with support services. It's not medication as an alternative to treatment, and it's certainly not medication being doled out indiscriminately that leads to diversion. Your predecessor, Dr. Vivek Morthy, was very vocal about gun violence. Some people say that that may have cost him his job. Uh, it's obviously a big issue still in our society. Do you feel like it's your role to talk about gun violence? And uh, do you feel like you may be limited in your ability to do so in this administration? Vivek and I are, are friends. We actually were texting just um, yesterday. And uh, politics are, are, comp are complicated, they're interesting. I have heard nothing that suggests that, that he was let go because of his position on guns. The reality is there hasn't been a Surgeon General that served out their full term in well over a decade, almost two decades. It's just one of those things about politics that when an administration changes, typically the person in that role changes. That said, uh, I've spoken about guns, I was down in in uh, Florida and spoke to the uh, Stoneman Douglas students just last month. I have never been told by the current administration that I can't speak on guns or any other issue. The president hired me to, to lead with the science and so far he's allowed me to do that. Now, what's interesting is, again, we want to make guns a binary issue. They're either good or they're bad. We have to have the courage to have a more nuanced discussion than that. I've lived in Baltimore. 
where the over-availability of guns is a public health threat in that community. My father-in-law lives in northern Indiana on a farm. I sat on his back porch and watched coyotes, packs of coyotes, run across the backyard. If he didn't have a gun, he wouldn't be able to protect his farm, his livelihood. So for him, when he hears gun control, that's, that's a red flag to him. They want to take away my ability to protect my farm and my family. I was in Arkansas uh, just a few weeks ago with the former Surgeon General Jocelyn Elders on a panel. And we were talking to another doctor in the crowd, and I said, what are you going to do tomorrow? It was a Friday. She said, I'm going to go out with my kids, and we're going to go turkey hunting. So we talk about ACEs. In Baltimore, guns contribute to adverse childhood experiences. In Arkansas, guns are resilience. They're a family bonding activity. We've got to have a more nuanced conversation. And I don't use the term gun control because I think it, it shuts down conversation. I talk about gun safety because no matter where you are, I think we can have a discussion about how we can make gun ownership safer for everyone. I think we need to go to the inner cities and figure out in that environment what's the right mix of gun safety versus making it available to, to legitimate folks who want to own guns. I think that, that mix is going to be different in Baltimore, downtown Baltimore, than it's going to be in, uh, in schools and in, in, in different environments versus what it's going to be in Arkansas or in, in uh, northern Indiana. And I, I, I implore you all to reject the binary. Have the courage to sit down with folks, to listen to them even when you disagree with them, and to have a nuanced conversation about where we need to go in order to get in the right direction on these complicated health issues. If they were easy, we'd have them solved. But we need to lead these conversations and we need to have the courage again to listen to different points of view. And a lot of times you'll be surprised what you find out. Great. Okay, so I'd like to open it up to questions. Hi, I'm Lauren. Um, my question for you is a lot of things, so I went to ASU mm -hmm. and I saw a lot of my friends do drugs. I did some drugs. When you see someone abusing drugs and it's very clear that it's an addiction and it's something that's really harming them, how do you help them when they don't see it as an addiction and they don't see it as harm? Like, how do you get someone to be like, you know, you need to go to rehab, you need to go to therapy. How do you talk to someone that doesn't see that they have a problem? Lauren, that is a wonderful question. Uh, we just launched a new uh, PSA campaign along with the Truth Initiative, the folks who help lower our, our youth smoking rates tremendously over the last um, 20 years and with the Ad Council. Uh, if you go to opioids.thetruth.com, you'll see these PSAs. And they're geared towards 18 to 24-year-olds. Why? Because we know that the majority of folks in treatment say they got started misusing opioids before the age of 25. And we want folks to understand how terribly dangerous these medications can be, how powerfully addictive they can be, even after misusing one time, and the lengths to which people will go to to support their habit. One of the more shocking ads, and these are all based on true stories, is of an individual who's under a car. He's lying underneath a car that's jacked up, and he kicks the jack out from underneath of him so that the car falls on him and breaks his back so that he can go in and get opioids. That's the depth that people will go to. So how is that an answer to your question? Well, number one, we need to help folks understand how dangerous these things are. It's not like having a beer. I, I tell folks, um, when we were younger, someone's 
dad or someone's uncle would go out and buy a six-pack of beer and there'd be 10 or 15 of us crowded underneath a bleacher splitting up a six-pack of beer. <laughs> now what happens is, so, is someone goes and gets the leftover Vicodin from grandma's medicine cabinet and they're passing out pills and folks think that, that they're completely innocent because they've got a, they've got a legitimate doctor's uh, note on them and that can be the pathway to addiction. The other thing we need to do is, again, we need to fight stigma because folks will resist because no one wants to admit that they've got a substance use disorder. I don't like to use the word because it's stigmatizing, but no one wants to admit that they're an addict. But when they find out that, that it's commonplace, that people all across the country are struggling with this, that it is a chronic disease, they're going to be much more likely to, to say, okay, this is a legitimate disease, and just like if I got diagnosed with asthma or if I got diagnosed with diabetes, it's okay to be diagnosed with substance use disorder and to move forward. That said, it's not easy. My own brother, we grew up in the same house, same family, same resources. I'm the Surgeon General of the United States, and he's sitting in prison right now for crimes he committed to support his addiction. It's not easy, and it's never going to be easy. And if I couldn't prevent my brother from going down that pathway alone with all the resources I have, then we can't expect anyone else to do it alone. It's going to take all of us fighting stigma and normalizing this as a chronic disease and helping folks understand how dangerous these things are, that it's not like just having half a beer. It's not okay to do these things in a party situation like what's happening on college campuses. And then hopefully we'll have fewer and fewer people going down this unfortunate pathway. I have a concern about, um, specifically I know somebody 35 years old, their relative passed and they needed help sleeping and help with anxiety. They went to a doctor in New York City, and the doctor, this doctor is known to off pills very quickly. The prescriptions were written, but the physician did not say to go along with that, counseling is important, mm -hmm. you know, bringing in the other services. So this person is sitting at home with these drugs mm -hmm. that they're altering on their own. Uh, the doctor isn't calling in, and that's, is that the doctor's responsibility or not? I don't know but these other services that are needed at the same time so this person doesn't take more of the anti-anxiety to the point where maybe they could kill themselves. Exactly. You know, so what's the responsibility in the medical profession, you know, or us to monitor the medical profession with how they're giving drugs and not having the caveat that you need the other services at the same time? Well, number one, we have dual crises going on. We have a crisis of undertreated chronic pain, we have a crisis of undertreated mental health issues, and we have a crisis of over-prescribing in our country. We are 5% of the world's population and we prescribe 85 to 90% of the world's Vicodin. So we have dual crises, and one of the things that we're working on at HHS and in the Office of the Surgeon General is to help inform providers to better monitor uh, prescribers of all stripes and we've seen uh, opioid prescribing go down by 20% in the last five years. In the VA system, it's gone down by 40%. So we are having success moving in the right direction. I want to make sure the pendulum doesn't overswing and we don't leave people with chronic pain out in a lurch. That's really what I'm focused on right now is trying to dial it in and, again, find that sweet spot. But the other point you brought up was critically important. We need better integration of mental health into our primary care services absolutely need to. You come in, you get a blood pressure, you get your heart rate checked, you need to have a mental health assessment 
we need to make that part of every single visit so that folks understand that you're not going to be compliant with any treatment. You're not going to be optimally successful with any treatment if we're not treating your anxiety, your depression, your mental health issues, and we're not surrounding folks with the support they need. We also need the health care system, and I encourage you all in the rest of the talks that you have throughout here to push the health care folks. Uh, ask them, what are you doing to incorporate prevention in the community in this? We know that 10% of health is health care. So, you know, folks want to talk about increasing access to health care. I think, and how do we improve health care? All of that is critically important. But we could do the best job in the world improving our health care system, and we're still only going to be dealing with 10% of the problem. We need to get upstream and look at behavior. We need to get upstream and look at environment, which between those two are 60% of health. And that is only going to happen if we get the health care system working with the community members to provide those supports. So in your instance, it's having that doctor educated and knowing about integrating mental health issues and primary care together, but also knowing what to do. We can't expect every primary care physician to be a psychiatrist also, but we can say, here are some support services in the community that you can refer folks to if you recognize that they have a problem. So I think that's ultimately what it comes down to is better integrating health, uh, public health and prevention with health care and better uh, integrating mental health into primary care when we do deliver it. You know, I'm going to take a moment to, you said something in there. You said, we have a chronic pain crisis. Why do we have a chronic pain crisis? What is causing physical chronic pain? Well, it goes back to what you said. One of the biggest risk factors, two people can have the exact same stimulus, and one person will be just fine, and another person will go on to develop chronic pain. Well, we know that people with anxiety, with depression, are more predisposed to go on to develop chronic pain. We also know that we do a terrible job of treating acute pain. We throw opioids at it instead of providing alternatives. So as alternatives such as uh, music therapy, such as, such as counseling, uh, such as uh, NSAIDs, like ibuprofen and, and Tylenol used appropriately. Uh, there are so many different relaxation techniques, so many different things we can do. If we did a better job treating acute pain, we wouldn't have so much chronic pain. And if we did a better job treating mental health issues, then a lot of folks wouldn't be predisposed to go on to develop chronic pain. Okay. All right. Back to you all. Hi, Dr. Adams. I'm a reporter with Vice, and I'm uh, intrigued by the concept of needing to integrate mental health care into primary care services, but also that it seems uh, somewhat antithetical from the Trump administration's point of view that um, there would be fewer people who even have access to primary care services if they don't have health insurance, um, given the association health plans that might be coming out or other changes to the law or changes to defending the law that would result in fewer people even having health coverage. So I, I'm interested in your opinion on that as someone who cares about opioids and mental health being treated. That's a great question. Anyone following what's going on in Virginia, have they been able to, uh, have they just voted to, to expand access to Medicaid in their state? I was in Indiana when we were one of the first red states to accept the, uh, the, the, the money from the federal government to expand coverage. I'm a big believer in, and this administration is a big believer in allowing for state innovation. And I think one of the things that we forget about is that there's still a lot of folks in our country who don't have access to care under the current system 
because we haven't allowed them the flexibility to be able to, to expand care in their states in a way that fits in with their culture and their sensibility. And you may not agree with their culture or their sensibility, but the fact of the matter is in Indiana, for instance, we were able to develop a plan that, where we charge co-pays for folks, and uh, our Healthy Indiana plan, but we were able to expand access to 400,000 people because the community said, okay, we're okay expanding as long as we incorporate a degree of personal responsibility. I think we need to continue to allow innovation and experimentation on the state level. I think we need to not forget about the, uh, I think we, we need to, to not think the one size fits all approach is going to work everywhere. And I'm hopeful personally, I mean, I'm gonna to continue to emphasize the importance of folks being able to get health care when they need it. I want everyone to understand that. As Surgeon General, I firmly believe folks should be able to get health care when they need it. But I don't think anyone has the magic solution. I mean, again, Atul Gawande is gonna come here and tell you our health care system's broken. So should we double down on it or should we try to promote innovation and, and allow folks to increase access in ways that fit in with their culture and their sensibilities? I know that's not a satisfying answer to you, but, but but I will say, again, I've seen in Indiana that, that you can increase access to care for folks if you're willing to facilitate and allow for a little innovation and you're willing to give a little bit. I was talking with the fellows yesterday, and one of the things that bothers me is that people say they believe in democracy, but the fact is they only believe in democracy when it delivers the results that they want when it doesn't deliver the results that they want, and they want me, the Surgeon General, to come in and say, make it happen the way that I want it to happen. I think that, uh, that we need to, to be more willing to, again, allow for states to determine what's best for them, and then we need to critically evaluate it. That's also important, too, from a scientific point of view. If they say we're gonna do this, we need to be willing and hold them to critical evaluations to make sure more people are being helped than being hurt. But in Indiana, 400,000 more people have insurance right now because we were given the flexibility, flexibility, a waiver by the federal government to implement a system that quite frankly a whole lot of people didn't want us to implement. And if they'd had their way, those 400,000 people wouldn't have coverage in Indiana right now. Thank you. General, you went to uh, UMBC in Maryland. Go Retrievers. Go Retrievers. <laughs> For those of you all who don't know, UMBC was the first number 16 seed to beat a number one seed in the NCAA tournament ever. And not only that, my post about the NCAA tournament and, and UMBC beating uh, UVA was my number one Facebook post as Surgeon General of the United States. Of course. And, and I love that, but it also goes back to figuring out how you resonate with folks. And I encourage you all to go to my Facebook page and look. I actually incorporated health messages into my NCAA post, but was able to reach an audience that otherwise wouldn't have cared about what I was saying on health. So again, it's about trying to figure out the proper way to communicate that health message. And no, no, nobody to, to learn that uh, from better than Dr. Friedman Hrabowski, yes. who's, who's really been a national leader in trying to get underrepresented communities and minorities uh, to become scientists, to become doctors like yourselves. How do we create a culture in higher education that mimics that sort of dedication? Dr. Rabowski is one of my mentors. I, I love him dearly, and I actually was uh, at a dinner with Dr. Rabowski and Francis Collins, the head of NIH, and Tony Fauci 
um, who was a, a, a guru in, in infectious disease and vaccines, and we were talking about this very issue. How do we, how do we increase the pipeline? And uh, I think that we have to get down to the, to the elementary school, to the middle school levels. I can't tell you how humbling it is for me. I, when I grew up, I had chronic asthma. I was in and out of the hospital every other, every other month. I was in the healthcare system a lot. I still had to wait until college before I actually had the chance to have a conversation with another black doctor. We need to get to those levels um, and, and help folks see that this is a legitimate pathway. We also, back to my point about, um, about health and economic prosperity and resonating, we need to show folks why it matters that they invest in education at the middle school level, at the, at the elementary school level, and why it's important that corporations, that communities provide those supports that allow all individuals to see that they can become a doctor, they can become a lawyer, they, they can become president of the United States, whether they're black or white, whether they're a woman or a man, or, 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 or declare as otherwise. Uh, we need to help create an environment where everyone sees that that's possible, and that's what Dr. Rabowski did with the Meyerhoff program. I was a Meyerhoff scholar. He helped us see that something that was never even in my, uh, I mean, my parents were teachers. They pushed me, but I didn't see being a doctor as something that was possible or in the, in, in the, uh, in, in the concept of reality for me. So the more we can do that, the better off uh, we will be and the more diverse um, our, uh, our leaders will be in this country. Uh, we're, we're wrapping up. I want to thank you for being such a great moderator, even though you, you. you started off with a fastball. <laughs> I like to get I, you off your, off your... I want you all to know hand. that as your Surgeon General of the United States, I am committed to making sure the science is a critical part of every conversation. And I am committed to leading with the science where that is going to be the best way for us to get to where we need to go to. But I am also committed to being a listener. I'm not the Surgeon General for Republicans or Democrats. I'm not the Surgeon General for people who believe in science or for people who don't believe in science. I'm not the Surgeon General for gun owners or for people who don't own, own guns. I'm the Surgeon General for everybody. And I try each and every day. I've been up since, I told Allison this, I've been up since four o'clock this morning, lying in bed thinking about how I would answer the border question if I got asked. <laughs> True story. And, and, and it's because I, wanted, I want the science to be part of this conversation. I want folks to understand that adverse childhood experiences are real, but I want them to understand that it's more complicated than all or none in one direction or the other on any of the issues we're talking about. Marijuana, guns, access to health care, and the border issues, and that I'm committed to being a compassionate listener and trying to take everyone's views into account, and then having a policy that is ultimately informed by the science and helps the most people that, 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 that it can. I'm committed to helping the most people I can with the tools that I have available, and it's the honor of my life, even despite the hard questions and the nasty Facebook and Twitter remarks I get. <laughs> to be your 20th United States Surgeon General because I really do believe God put me in this position at this time to be an advocate, to be a convener, to be someone who can uphold the science 
and bring folks together and ultimately lead us to a better place. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Adams. Thank you so much for being Jerome Adams is the Surgeon General of the United States. Allison Kojak reports on health policy for NPR. Their conversation was held in June in Aspen, Colorado at Spotlight Health. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Spotlight Health team is Peggy Clark, Ruth Katz, Katie Drasser, Tracy Anderson, Natalie Johnson, Deb Cunningham, and Sola Farquhar. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.